Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. So today's poem is called The Wishing Bone. It was written by Stephen Mitchell, and I took it from his book, The Wishing Bone and Other Poems. Uh, Stephen Mitchell's a poet and anthologist, as well as a translator of several books, uh, including stories from Hans Christian Andersen and Homer's Iliad. His other book for children is titled The Creation. The Wishing Bone by Stephen Mitchell It happened on a winter's day. The air was cold. The sky was gray. Out walking in the woods alone, I came upon a wishing bone. I picked it up and wished the sky as warm as gentle as July. I wished sweet music in the air and flowers growing everywhere. I wished an apple orchard and a beach with sugar-flavored sand, a lake, a little birch canoe, and everything I wished came true. I wished down tinier than a flea and wished upon the tallest tree. I wished me as a wolf, a shark, a firefly shining in the dark, a blade of grass, an ocean wave, a bear asleep inside its cave. I wished a talking daffodil. I wished a dragon I could kill. I wished a flock of purple geese. I wished the world eternal peace. I wished a pair of angels' wings, and then a thousand other things. But after many days had passed, each wish seemed easier than the last, and I felt bored as stiff as stone, and wished the wishing off the bone. And suddenly I stood at ease among the bare and patient trees, one ordinary winter's day, the air was cold, the sky was gray. Uh, my guest today is Margaret Peterson Haddocks, author of the Missing and Shadow Children series, uh, also such books as Uprising, The Summer of Broken Things, and many, many more, including her Children of Exile series, the third book of which, Children of Jubilee, will be out this November. You can find Margaret's website at haddocksbooks.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, I've been uh, reading the, the Children of Exile series, uh, and, and I've been really enjoying it. And I, so I want to ask you about that. And uh, this idea of this sort of twist and idea of the, the conflict that children are dealing with is actually being returned to their parents. I'm just wondering where you got the idea for, um, for this book. Yes, um, it was actually one of the stranger ways for getting an idea. It was because I went to Disney World in the midst of reading a very sad nonfiction book. And it was such a contrast to be in Disney World where everything is just a little bit too perfect. And then having read this book where there's a lot of trauma and a lot of death and, and really people behaving very terribly to one another. And I was thinking also about kids coming out of one environment and going to the other. And, and I guess it seemed natural to me to see the, the thought of kids having had a happy, safe childhood and then having to deal with, as they get older, some more brutal realities. Now, I understand you have, the, like I mentioned, the uh, one book is coming out in November, and I understand that you also have some other books coming out next year as well? Yes, I do. Uh, well, I'll, and I'll talk about the book coming out in November first, that Children of Jubilee, which comes out in November, 
is the third book in the Children of Exile series, which starts with Rosie and Edwy having to deal with trying to figure out why they've been taken away from their family and uh, why they're being sent back and just feeling desperate to find out. And that book is told from Rosie's perspective. The second book, Children of Refuge, is told from Edwy's perspective. And he's kind of a troublemaker and has a very different view of things. He's resented the perfect world that he grew up in and kind of discovers that not having rules is not really that great either. And then the third book, Children of Jubilee, is told from the older sister's perspective of Edwy. So it, it kind of finishes off the whole story. And then I have two books actually coming out in 2019. I have the first book in a new series. It's going to be called Greystone Secrets. And the first book is The Strangers. And that particular series is starts with kind of a big mystery of three kids coming home from school and discovered discovering that three kids with their same names and birth dates have just been kidnapped. So there's a lot of suspense and tension in that particular book and the series as a whole. And then I also have a standalone coming out next year, next fall, that will be called Remarkables. Hmm. I was wondering, uh, in a, in a, a book series like the Children of Exile or the Gravestone series you've got coming out next year, or even a, like oh, the missing gray, series, Graystone, not Gravestone. Gray, Although oh, I'm, sorry. I, I'm thinking that that would have been a, that. What a cool title for a series, the Gravestone oh. series. But this is just gray, as in the color Graystone. gray. Graystone, oh. yes. Graystone. Well, something like that, or even the missing series, which goes on much longer. I was wondering, do you have a uh, for a series? Do you have a general trajectory in mind, or do you go into each book thinking, uh, let's see where this book leads, and then that leads to the next book. I have actually done it both ways. With the first series that I did, the Shadow Children series, I actually did not plan to write a series at the beginning that I had just thought that I'd written a standalone book among the hidden. And then many, many, many people, including my editor and my agent, were saying, you have to continue this story. You have to give us a sequel. And I really struggled with that notion of, well, I wrote the story. I, I don't have anything to put in a sequel. And it took me a while because I just didn't feel like I could step back far enough to see the story arc of an entire series. With that particular series, it was much more of a situation where I'd be like, okay, I'll figure out this book and then I'll think beyond it after I finish this book. And it took me until about the fourth or fifth book of that series before I felt competent even to take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to look at the story arc of where I'm going to go from here to the end of this book or into the end of the series. So with that one, it was much more on a book by book basis. And there was a lot of panic involved that lots of times in between books, I would think, okay, well, I, I got through that one and it turned out uh, pretty well, but there's no way I'm going to be able to continue this series. So with the next series that I did, the missing series, I did start out with kind of a plan for the series as a whole. But what often happens is that as I'm writing, things develop. Um, and I figure out characters better and things happen that I didn't necessarily plan for. And then I incorporate that into the plan for the series as a whole. So it was, I, I had a plan for the whole eight book arc, but I kept updating it and it changed quite a bit as I went along. And that's been how it's been with every other series I've done. 
Now, you've said uh, early in your career you worked as a journalist, and that's mm-hmm. informed uh, significant, to a significant extent your career as a fiction writer about yeah. paying attention to detail. And I'm wondering for beginning writers who you may not have such an opportunity, what would you suggest as a way of getting themselves ready to be an effective uh, writer? Right. Um, well, reading is always a great way to become better at writing. And, and I often tell kids that it's it helps you so much that it's almost like cheating, that it seems unfair, that you're just reading things because you're having fun with it, but you're absorbing all the skills of the author who wrote whatever you're reading. And if you kind of read paying attention to, well, why does this character feel so real to me when this other character just doesn't seem like a person? It just seems paper thin. Um, why, why am I sobbing at this point in this book? Why am I laughing at this point in the book? Kind of analyze your own reaction to what you're reading. And that kind of gives you a perspective on improving your own writing. And then there's also just that the more you write, the better you get at it. Just like any time that you write, anything that you practice, you get better at. Hmm. Now, the book you picked as one of your your favorite kids' books is uh, Millicent Men, Girl Genius by Lisa Yee. And it was first published in 2003 by Scholastic. And for readers who may not have had a chance to read it yet, uh, what can you tell them about it, what it's about? Well, this is a book about a girl who is one of those super genius kids that you see like maybe on, you know, you might see it somewhere on YouTube where it's like, okay, this kid is two years old and she can recite the president. She can't just recite the presidents. She can recite the presidents by uh, alphabetical and, and in order of when they served and, you know, like six different ways she can recite the presidents and she's two years old. And it, it I just thought it was a very entertaining book in the sense that, She's still a kid. You know, she's got this very high power brain, but she's still a kid. And there are a lot of things that she has to figure out, just those interpersonal relationships that everybody has to figure out. I think it's also a hilarious book. There are so many instances where um, she just has the unusual outlook on things, partly because of her background, partly just she's kind of a quirky kid. And I found it very entertaining when I read it when it very first when it first came out. And it was one of those books that uh, it came out when my daughter was about uh, the about I'm, I'm trying to think exactly when she would have read it. She was maybe nine or 10. And it was one of those books that she really engaged with. And so I have a lot of happy memories about this book, not only because I like it, but because it was also something that she and I had some interesting discussions related to the book. Now, you touched on this a little bit uh, that Milson is that has this someone with a very rare ability. I mean, she's mm-hmm. literally somebody's one in a million. Exactly. Uh, but, and yet, and yet, what is it about her that makes her such a identifiable and relatable character to um, kids and adults who read the book, even though she is that kind of one in a million person? Right. I think she's relatable and identifiable on a couple different levels. One is that I think there are a lot of kids who feel like they're different a lot of times kids feel like they're different from everybody else because maybe they're not as good at something as everybody else. And so this is definitely a twist that for Millicent, it's not that she's as good as good at something as other people, but it's that she has this super ability that the other kids in her class can't even touch. But it's also as things go along because her mother has signed her up for this volleyball league. She's terrible at volleyball and 
and it's really annoying to somebody who is that good at one field to suddenly have to be working in another field and be terrible at it. And I think that's something that anybody can identify with because nobody is good at everything. And we all have moments where, okay, I can be really good at this, but boy, am I a flop at something else. And uh, so that I think is very identifiable. The other thing that's very identifiable is her basic problems. She's worried about having friends and, um, and how to be a friend. And what do people value me for? And she has had some bad experiences where she thinks somebody is her friend and they're not. And, and then she's afraid. She ends up hiding how smart she is from the girl that she meets through volleyball, Emily. And Emily is just part of the reason I really love this book is that Emily is such a great friend that when she finds out that Millie, Millicent has been lying to her, about being a genius or like hiding that from her she's not she doesn't care one way or another about her intelligence she just is upset that she'd been lied to and i think that's a really important point hmm. yeah and when she meets ellen Emily sort of fills this uh, need she didn't realize or just didn't want to think about that she needed. But what is it about Emily that really appeals to Melissa? Because she is a very different person than she is. Um, Melissa she is. is. And I think it, it's also, I think a lot of times parents in particular, but, but teachers sometimes as well, kind of tend to push kids together who are more alike. And I think for uh, Millie and Emily, what's good about their relationship is that they are different. And I think it's uh, it, it, that makes them more interesting to each other. And kind of one of the most touching moments in the book, um, which is also a comical moment, is when um, Emily is very upset about a situation in her family and, and has every right to be upset. And, and Millie really does not want to know what to say. And she ends up doing something that she that uh, is the perfect thing. She offers to let her friend do a makeover for her and like get, put makeup all over her face, which is the last thing she wants. But she understands her friend really well enough to know that that's something that's going to help cheer her friend up. And, and that's like a major turning point in the book. And I give I think this was Lisa Yee's very first book. And I give her a lot of credit for just having that scene in there, something so simple that then is very profound for those two girls. Now, apart from volleyball, the other thing that she's forced to do is to tutor uh, uh, somebody who you might say is Millicent's opposite in almost every way, Stanford Wong. Uh, and I'm wondering, does she really hate him or is he just so alien to her that she just doesn't quite understand who she who he is? I think she hates him in the beginning because uh, they have not had a good relationship. And I think he has resented her because there are a lot of stereotypes about uh, Chinese American kids that he feels like she's ruined it for him. <laughs> and because she is so smart and everybody expects him to be like that too. And he loves basketball. That's all he cares about. They have not been pleasant to each other until they be the tutoring relationship starts. And then there's also the complication of Emily gets a crush on him and and then, you know, there's some tension there, but it's also kind of they see each other in a different light. 
Now, you touched on this a little bit, but like you said, uh, uh, both uh, Millicent and Stanford come from similar, even though they're very different people, they come from similar backgrounds, multi-generational Chinese Correct. Americans. And I'm wondering, how do you think this pr- book approaches, you know, the the expectations, assumptions, both from family and from others, and even from the reader, of what that means to be, um, you know, multi-generation or Asian in America? Right. Um, I think at the time that this book came out, there were not many books that were depicting that type of a scenario. And it, it's certainly there, and I think it's important, and and um, I'm, I'm really glad that it's in there. But I think it's something that uh, is not overemphasized at all. That I, I think sometimes there's an expectation that that should be the only thing that the book is about, and really the book is about the relationships. Hmm. Now, the other relationship that Maddie has in the book, the most important person in her life, is her grandmother, Maddie. Yes. And yes. I'm wondering, how do you think she both, Maddie, both grounds Millicent and actually pushes her ahead at the same time? Well, I think Maddie is a great character because I think she understands that Millicent uh, sometimes is not being above the board, kind of ex- explaining the problems that she's having to her grandmother. And... Um, and Millicent does understand that Maddie understands her. And that that's a great thing. I mean, every kid should have someone who is like Maddie, who is there for them no matter what. And, and Millicent's parents are wonderful people, too. But sometimes you need somebody else besides just your parents helping you out. So there are times that Maddie certainly says to her, you know, it's not enough just to be smart. You need to that that's not going to keep you happy. You need to have relationships with other people. And she definitely is pushing Millicent toward connecting to other people in a way that Millicent really has not. Now, you talked earlier about this is, you know, this is a very funny book. It's it's meant to be a humorous book. And a lot of the humor stems from the disconnect between Millicent's, you know, incredible intellect and just her kind of sometimes astonishing cluelessness about what's going on. And did you think that's a quality that uh, a lot of normally very bright people share with Millicent as well? They can be very bright about some things and very (laughs) not so bright about others. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a lot of, uh, at least that's the stereotype of a lot of people. But I think also, because she's been so bright from a very young age, that's been her interest. And that's also been the way people have pushed her. So um, it definitely happened for Millicent. And certainly there are a lot of other people who have that happen in that way. The past couple of podcasts, I've been thinking a lot about titles about why author give particular titles, why they choose one over another and the significance might have. And I was wondering about this one. I mean, obviously, part of the title is her, the character's name. But it's also given that added descriptor, it's just not Millicent Min, it's Millicent Min, girl genius. And I'm wondering what you think that little addition by the author, uh, what is what does she want us to focus on? Or what do you think she means by that? Well, I think because that has been her whole identity until the events of this particular summer. Uh, and, and I think that would be how she would have uh, would have introduced herself. And that's kind of how it goes, too. And I think there's also that appeal. I, I, I think that's a way of uh, saying, OK, this is a book about a really smart kid. And I, I think it does appeal to a lot of very smart kids to kind of know, well, what's that like? Not, not necessarily just kids who are geniuses, but a lot of kids who have done well in school and uh, they they like that kind of identification. Now, are there particular uh, passages or a, or a passage from the book uh, that you'd like to share? 
Yeah, um, I have, I, I kind of marked a scene that I would like to read that is about, I, I believe this is the very first game that Millicent plays with volleyball. And um, she is not very good. And so the way the scenario is described is how it goes. I, I just thought it was very entertaining. So here's the start of it. A rather tall, scary girl from the other team took her place to serve. She looked like she could squash me like a bug. Grinning, the girl tossed the ball up in the air with ease. Then she smashed it in the desired direction. I squeezed my eyes shut as the ball came barreling down at me in what seemed like slow motion. As I said a prayer, I wondered if this was how the dinosaurs felt when the giant asteroid came screaming toward Earth. Suddenly, bang, contact. To everyone's amazement, I sent the ball flying back to enemy territory. It landed at the feet of the server and then bounced away. There was a stunned silence as jaws dropped in unison. Then, all at once, laughter erupted. It echoed in the gym, and I am sure could be heard throughout Rancho Rosetta. She kicked the ball, someone howled. I could have just died. Somehow I managed to struggle through the rest of the game, not making eye contact with anyone helped, although I am sure my teammates were miffed that I kept bumping into them. When at last the game was over, I plopped down against the bleachers. I rummaged through my briefcase and fished out a bag of Cheetos and a Gatorade. After I tried in vain to, tw to twist the cap off my drink, the girl sitting next to me took the bottle from me and opened it on the first try. Of course, I'm sure I had loosened it quite a bit. And that's where I'm going to stop. But um, And that's actually, it's her first meeting with Emily where they have a conversation because Emily is the one who just opened the bottle for her after she's just humiliated herself in front of everybody. Well, thank you for sharing that passage. And uh, and, and Margaret, thank you for uh, picking this book. I've not had a chance to read it, so it's nice to be able to yeah. uh, finally finally read it. It's, it's sort of one of those books you put on your list and eventually get to until, you know, yeah, <laughs> and sometimes yeah. you don't. Sometimes you don't. Well, and, I and you again, enjoyed it, too. I did very much. I did very much. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about it. You are welcome. You can find Margaret's books at haddocksbooks.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. <laughs>